The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to Dugout Study Hall, part of the Pitcher List Podcast Network and a remedial course in baseball stats. I'm your host and expert layman, Matt Goodwin, and I'm joined by my co-host, fake baseball economist, Alexander Chase. How you doing, Alex? Hey, I'm not too bad. Um, how about yourself, Matt? Hanging in there. Uh, got uh, a little buried with some of the weather this week, which brings me to my absolute burning question for you to start off the show. I have the top, and that is, uh, how do you feel about snow? burning a burning question a really burning not? question <laughs> about snow yeah you know um I, I was born in winnipeg and i don't remember living there uh but i grew up in the, the greater dallas area and um, snow is not real according to anyone from dallas it is a fake thing uh <laughs> so yeah it's it's kind of nice uh, up here in the northeast i had a ton of snow days when i was teaching in baltimore and mm. that was so fun <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as a teacher yeah. um i don't know I, I guess it's a little bit different this year uh, yeah, it is. I mean, as a as a uh, current teacher, I can tell you, we had this week, we had one snow day and one learn from home snow day. So uh, very interesting. But we got our biggest storm that we've had, I think, probably in a couple of years. Uh, double digit uh, inches. Yeah, it's uh, it was it was fun to see my girls outside playing in it. They really haven't lived through a big snowstorm yet. So that was pretty cool. God, can you imagine like playing baseball while it's snowing? Uh, no, I know some people have, uh, but uh, it seems like it would add a degree of difficulty. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would love to see that. Um, someone needs to get on that, though. That would be really funny. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it would certainly uh, probably give us some bloopers, uh, I would think. Give us something to, to mm. go back and, and check out. Uh, so anyway, let's uh, let's move on from the snow discussion, although it is fascinating. And uh, I do enjoy a good storm now and then, although at this point, I think I'm ready for spring. Um, yeah. And for more than just the nice weather, also for baseball right around the corner. Um, and uh, I want to start off with our numbers of the week. And I'm going to start with the number 40.8%, which is the 2020 uh, leader for pitchers in O-swing percentage. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with O-swing percentage, that means the number of uh, people who swing outside the zone. It's kind of like a chase rate number, people who are swinging at pitches that are outside the strike zone. It is literally the number that my uh, Twitter handle is a joke about. So yeah. I, I do care about this. <laughs> a, a direct reference to uh, to the where you can find Alex on Twitter. Um, and so the leader there in 2020, uh, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here on this stat. Uh, that was Kenta Maeda. Oh, 
okay. Yeah, I wouldn't have got guessed that actually. That's well, I've got a, I've got another stat for you to be able to play a game. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna do a little guessing game here in a minute, but I want you to talk maybe a little bit to to how. Uh, that 40.8% league-leading O-swing percentage for Kenta Maeda might inform people uh, who are trying to look into, is Maeda going to be able to be the same? Is he going to maybe uh, regress a little bit? What does that tell us about Kenta Maeda? So, um, yeah, I want to be really upfront. I love Kenta Maeda, and I'm <laughs> drafting him really high. <laughs> um, and it's because Kenta Maeda brings with him a really different approach to pitching than a lot of other guys out there. That's why he's off the charts in this one direction, is that he's not trying to blow the ball past people. He's trying to blow the ball under people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, Kenta Maeda's got a huge, deep, and effective repertoire of secondary pitches. And there are a lot of different ways to be good at striking people out. Mm -hmm. Um, We're often in search of the extremes in one way or another. And Kent Maeda is a great example of a guy who has found his niche and is really good at it. Um, and that's why I'm going to draft him mm-hmm. quite frankly. <laughs> um, as we kind of like talk more broadly though, about um, how to be good at strikeouts. Oh, swings definitely the things I want a thing. I want someone to be good at in mm-hmm. some way though. If you don't have at least a pitcher too, that gets people to chase outside the zone you're probably going to be in a, in a bad place unless you're um, really, really exceptional in the zone. So we'll definitely talk more about like different models, but um, I love the Kenta Maeda model and I want to see more people try to emulate it for sure. So you heard it here, people. Uh, high on Alexander Chase's draft board in the, the season 2021. Um, I'm going to follow this up with another, another number, uh, our second number of the week. Um, and that is a 71.6% Z contact percentage. And so that is the, uh, the percentage of contact given up on pitches inside the zone. So this would be the league leader for the least amount of contact given up uh, for contact on pitches inside the strike zone. And this time I'm going to get, have you guess who it is that I'm talking about here. Yeah, so this is the exact opposite of Kenta Maeda. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm trying to think, who's got the most unhittable stuff inside the zone? It, is it DeGrom? It is. Yeah. yeah. Well okay, done. We right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the more traditional strikeout model, right? Um, and if you want to like look for numbers that can match your eye test and expectations, that's where I like these numbers. Um, it's really easy to like pair them to something real and tangible. I like to have a number that is um, that is that. So we'll, you can definitely also make predictions about who else would be good at that thing. It'll inform you in some ways. You can also flip this around, and uh, the the big daddy hackers out there of the world um, often have some very low Z contact numbers. How would you say this folds into what makes Degrom so good? Well, if he doesn't have to throw the ball outside the zone, um, it means that if you don't swing at it, it's still a strike. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and and, and Degrom definitely has stuff he throws outside the zone. His Low 90s slider. <laughs> God, that is just an illegal collection of words right there. Uh, but yeah, if he manages to convince you not to swing, it's still a strike. And that's that's the thing um, about DeGrom is he's got so many different ways. I mean, it's not even fun to compare him to other players at some point. And I mean, that hardly seems fair, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not fair for anyone involved, really. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there were definitely... Uh, on the pitch level rather than the player level, some other pitches that uh, are very, very unhittable inside the zone. Um, he doesn't have a, uh, a monopoly on those. So as, as we kind of dig a little bit deeper into strikeouts, 
is what mm-hmm. I imagined you're going to bug me about today. Uh, and definitely, yeah, that's kind of the theme here. As we uh, we kind of segue here into our, our our central question, which is, how can I be right about strikeouts? How can I get an edge in in my league so that I have a little bit of inside information and I can outdraft my league mates who I like very much but definitely want to beat? Yeah. So, you that's a good question. But I kind of want to f- answer that question first with another question. It's like, why do you care about strikeouts? Um, personally, I'm sure you have a really, yeah, yeah, let's go for this. I'm sure you got a really deep answer as to why you personally care about strikeouts so much, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I dug into uh, a lot of data and what it turns out is I care about strikeouts because it's a category in my league and I get points in my points league and, uh, I'm playing to win here, Alex. I'm playing to win. That's a really good reason, Matt. Um, the other reason people might care, <laughs> the reason it's a category, even if you would, um, is because strikeouts are the thing that first and foremost a pitcher can control most if we're looking at year over year correlations and stuff like that this is the thing that we can most definitively say that jacob de has control over <laughs> um yeah or that Cantameda has control over or if you were talking about control it's like we can reliably say that someone who can't strike someone out in season one is still not going to be able to strike someone out in season two um and someone who can barring some catastrophic change probably we will be able to do it next season as well so we care about Mm -hmm. it it lets us make good predictions um it also really really affects outcomes um i mean obviously the number of home runs you give up is going to like dramatically affect your era but your strikeout rate is pretty high up there as well in terms of the things that are going to determine how good you are so it's kind Mm -hmm. of like both gonna tell us how good someone was and will be all at the same time better than pretty much any other number Mm-hmm. And if I'm looking at traditional categories, uh, and we're talking about strikeouts, we're talking about WHIP, we're talking about ERA, strikeouts are going to impact other categories. Yes. It's not just that it's only going to help me with strikeouts; it's also going to give me somebody who is less likely to be giving up walks and hits um, yeah. and runs. Yeah, and a lot of this might like seem really obvious. Um, I really bring it up because I want to say it's just a huge, like way more than anything else you would expect correlation. And predictor and everything else. Like, the degree to which we should care about them is gigantic. And when someone is good without doing it, it is extremely unusual. Um, Yeah, there's a new piece from Alex Chamberlain on Fangraphs about how Kyle Hendricks, like, breaks all of these ERA estimators, including the one I tried to make, because he doesn't strike as many people out (laughs) as the other people who are as good as him. So, yeah, we care about strikeouts. Um, Now, to be clear, I'm talking about, like, k percent not k per nine um yeah right right yeah do you want to talk maybe just a touch about the difference there so that before we get into maybe talking about specific pitchers and why k percent um matters why k per nine does or doesn't uh, and where they're more useful in in making decisions about who you might want to pick up for your staff so basically if you're a person who is like raised on k per nine maybe it's just like the number makes a lot of sense to you um more than one per inning is good less than that is bad um <laughs> like that, that that scale makes sense and it is mostly true it's not like it's a bad stat it's just a k percentage is better um, okay. And the reason is that the denominator is better. <laughs> um, basically, let's imagine a, a really ridiculous case. Um, so uh, the defense behind you is really bad. Um, who is a terrible defense? Um, oh, yeah, let's imagine that, like, um, for some reason, we've replaced your entire infield with Nelson Cruz. 
uh, a bunch of it. <laughs> you're you're going to win some games, but you're going to really, really have a terrible battle. <laughs> you're going to score a lot of runs, but you're going to give up a lot, too. <laughs> yeah, I want to see this, by the way. Um, what that might mean is that every time your opponent makes contact, um, it's a hit somehow. <laughs> yeah. So you have to strike out every single batter, every that you get an out for, right? So okay. you end up with a 27.00k per nine. That doesn't mean that you had a great game or anything like that. The thing right, about strikeout right. rate is that it is kind of blind to what your defense is doing. That removes an element of variance and allows for fairer and more future predictive numbers. Um, no matter how many people are on base, well, I guess maybe people will change their approach, but like roughly speaking, even if you've you know, given up some hits off of some infield bloop variants. The next guy comes out the bat. If you got a 25% strikeout rate, you still have a one in four chance of striking it out. And like that allows right, us right. as watchers of the game and as people who will also want to know what's going to go on in the future to like make informed comments and make informed choices. So yeah, strikeout rate. And like the, the numbers that we're typically looking for, for those of you guys who aren't as familiar, um, if you're in the low 20s, like 21, 22%, that's okay. That's not great mm-hmm. for fantasy purposes. That's not like an ace or anything. It's like a pretty average or like slightly below average pitcher. Once you're into the mid 20s, that's when you're getting into those guys who like you want to be drafting more for your teams. Um, once you're close to 30, um, for starting pitchers at least, that's really right. good. <laughs> really, really yeah. good. Um, obviously, you want to add a few percent for relievers because they can kind of just add that tick of gas and um often basically if you don't have the stamina you gotta have a little bit of extra stuff to make it onto a roster <laughs> right. or like it's not just stamina but like you know you can kind of like perform that trade-off so you want well, your relievers situations right i yeah, mean yeah. relievers are, are generally coming into situations where the strikeout is maybe even that much more valuable and a lot of them will also end up um facing same handed hitters so they get a little bit of extra strikeout boost because yeah, they're that makes sense too in a they've been handed a nice deck um, so what I'm hearing is that if we're looking at K percentage versus K per nine, it's not that K per nine doesn't tell us a story, but it tells us a story with a little bit more variability. Yeah. yeah K yeah. percentage is a little bit more lined up with a pitcher's skill set. Yeah. And as we basically take that comparison, we're ready to kind of dive into all of the different component parts. But before we do that, who do you want to actually like talk about this with? Well, you know, I think uh, an interesting case study, and mostly because he's near and dear to my heart, although I did just trade him in a dynasty league, and it, it, it hurt me a little bit to do. Um, but Zach Gallen, I, I really, I, I, I like Zach Gallen, and I think a lot of people like Zach Gallen. I think a lot of people should like Zach Gallen. Um, but I think that he, he brings up a lot of interesting metrics that mm-hmm. can help us kind of frame this conversation such that... Um, you know, can we count on Zach Gallen? You look at something like having a, a fastball velocity in the 21st percentile, mm-hmm. that might seem like a red flag. Like, oh, he's there's no way he's possibly going to replicate this. But I think there's a lot more to the story, and I think he's a great place to start. Yeah, yeah. I, I like a lot of the different things that he does. Um, I want to start out with fastball velocity just kind of briefly. We're not going to talk about it too much. Um, but you bring up 21st percentile. You see this on baseball's avant it's one of the sliders um a handful of other things that like often jump out so i'm kind of curious for you matt like what numbers do you typically think that we should be looking for when we're evaluating how good someone is at striking someone out other than strikeout rate a pretty good number itself 
Uh, yeah, certainly, you know, uh, strikeout rate, obviously. I, I would want to look at maybe something like a swinging strike percentage. How many yep. times are they getting people to swing and miss on their stuff? I think that's maybe a measure of, of quality of stuff. Um, I do think velocity does matter in general, um, but I do think that it uh, it can be misleading in places. And something that I have interest in that maybe we can dive into, whether that's now or in a little bit, is is how spin relates to the velocity and how that relationship can affect whether or not somebody can still be good. Great. And all those things don't come together in a nice, neat way where you can be like, just add up all the numbers and there is someone, how good someone is, right? Right. Really, really requires you to kind of have an ability to apply the eye test as well. And one of the things I want to really highlight for those of you guys who want to know why I love Zach Gallen also, God, I love so many pitchers, is that I think that Zach Gallen does a lot of things, like when you look at the eye test, um, they look good. People are uh, getting frozen. People are whiffing through pitches. Um, we want to make sure that we're looking for numbers as we evaluate pitchers that we can explain. Um, I don't like it when right. our brains turn to mush because we just say um, Woba better or Woba worse because a lot of people can't talk about how our boba comes from or like why it's important now it's important don't get me wrong there i really like woba but mm -hmm. i feel like a lot of people just kind of get into like slider mode but they say red good and i'm gonna draft him um so let's talk about a couple of these component parts um the very first place i want to jump off with we're gonna come back to velocity uh we're gonna come back to spin is i want to talk about whiff rate versus swing strike rate now on savant you see whiff rate you don't see swinging strike rate now, I take it mm -hmm. you've taken swinging strike rate from also peeking on fan graphs pages? Fan graphs, yes. Yeah, yeah. Another place that we all love. And this kind of gets us back to like that, I want to make sure that the denominator is... It sounds so nerdy when you say it, but it's, it's, it's true. Like, we want to make sure that we come up with a stat that actually measures the situation we are trying to describe. Um, and the thing is, like, when people don't swing, that matters. So whiff rate is a measure of how many times you can get someone to miss the ball when they swing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of pitching is happens when people aren't swinging, you know? Um, right. Zach Allen yeah. is really good at getting people to not swing at balls that they probably should swing at. Um, so if we want to come up with a fair comparison, we need to figure out like how many times they're getting someone to uh, swing and miss in total. And that's what swinging strike rate does. Um, it's a measure of how many out of the total pitching sample um that makes it a better predictor um, and it makes a fairer predictor um, mm -hmm. because not everyone's trying to get people to swing as often as each other they're different builds you know different arsenals um right so that's it's really important like just make sure that every time you're trying to evaluate a pitcher like come up with try to come up with like the the, the nelson cruz is your defense example come up with these <laughs> ridiculous stuff not because it's literally happening but because it allows you to test to see if the number that you're using could be lying to you how to not be wrong about strikeouts if you will yeah yeah you know this actually reminds me of something if, if you can indulge me for just a moment you uh the let's make a deal uh yeah i think you'll actually like this one though uh the let's make a deal kind of uh what should you do right and and you know people think that after you've been uh, one door has been revealed you have a 50 50 shot oh my god right? are you talking about the money hall problem yeah, exactly. The money hall problem, right? And so if it makes a lot of sense to people that once one door is revealed, well, you've got a 50-50 shot, right? If you extrapolate that example out to if there was a million doors and they showed you all of the empty ones except for two and one has nothing and one has something, the likelihood that you picked one out of a million that had something is super low. So it makes sense that it's not 50-50. 
I think that's a that's a really good kind of example for what we're talking about here with with uh, uh, these ratios and, and these denominators. Um, Matt, I, I want to be honest with you. I have assigned a tutoring student that I talked to in the next couple of days the Monty Hall problem without any context and just asked them oh, to, that's like, phenomenal. to write something. It is one of my favorite statistical problems. For those of you guys who aren't familiar, Monty Hall show. Um, this guy would offer people three doors. Uh, two of them have goats. One of them has a car. And after they pick their original choice, he would open up one of the doors with goats. And he would like let someone pick then, like, do you want to swap, swap or not? Yeah, you can swap it out or you can take the one you originally picked. And the thing is, when you originally picked, there was a one in three chance you were right. So if you're given the option to swap, there's still a two out of three chance that the other door has the car. Uh, it's like, was I right versus all of the other options combined? Um, right. And when you're talking about three doors, it's a little bit harder, I think. When you make it about a million doors, it becomes a lot exactly. clearer. So when we take the extreme example of a pitcher, it's not necessarily because that situation is informative, but it helps us understand the logic and the concepts behind what will be informative. Yeah, yeah. I have never heard that particular example with the Monty Hall problem. Um, I've heard of it in like other places. Um, this co- concept is called an intuition pump and in, like the general like philosophy, logic, nerd space that I have taken a <laughs> class on. Um, and I love intuition pumps. Um, I'm definitely going to steal that Monty Hall example. But yeah, I know for those of you guys who are like, what are these guys talking about? You can really just kind of boil this down to um, if you want to figure out if a number is lying to you, stretch it to its extremes and make sure it still kind of follows your intuition. Um, yeah, it still follows the logic. Right? Yeah. So as we get back to Zach Allen, <laughs> yes, who is our, our friend for the day. Probably of more interest to all of you at home than Monty Hall. Yeah. Um, we yeah. talked a little bit about why um, swinging strike rate is important. Now, um, are you familiar with CSW rate? Then? Yes. Yes. So CSW, for those of you guys uh, who are not following Alex Fast on Twitter, it's called strikes plus whiffs. And just a small pause. If you're not, you definitely should be. At Alex Fast 8. Why is he 8? I want to know who the other 7 Alex Fast <laughs> are. We're going to have to get him on I'm, and ask him about... Just We'll bring him on as a guest and just ask him that question. No, that I want to bring on the other Alex Fasts one at a time to ask them who <laughs> they are. And one through problem. 7 and see what their story is. I definitely brought up Swinging Strikes first because I want to bring up something that makes Gallon really interesting. And that's that he gets more called strikes than he does Swinging Strikes. Mm-hmm. Um... And when you're talking about velocity earlier, here we get to kind of wrap some of the stuff together. Um, Gallon is getting more people to uh, not swing very much on purpose. If you've got a fastball that's more hittable, you don't want people swinging at it. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to build your arsenal in such a way that you're using the action on your fastball to convince people that it is not the pitch that they want to be swinging at. Um, and this is really important. Um, when we're trying to compare different pitchers, you really, really want to make sure that you're comparing someone else. Uh, you're comparing your guy to someone else who is good at doing the same things. Right. Um, you don't want to compare Zach Gallen to Garrett Cole. You don't want to compare <laughs> Zach right. Gallen to, um, you know, relievers. You don't want to compare him to Evan Diaz. But you also don't want to t- compare him to, like, Tyler Duffy um, on the Twins, who, like, throws more sliders than he does fastballs. Like, you want to make sure you build out reasonable comparisons. Um, right. The idea, then, should be still be, like... Who strikes out more people? Who works more people? Those numbers are going to be pretty normal. But like in terms of the component parts, if you're trying to take a different pathway to success, 
you want to be measuring how good someone is at their particular pathway. So, so let me let me. I'm just going to jump in and ask you a quick question here because I think this might frame the conversation, and I I don't know the answer to this. So I'm hoping you can enlighten sure. me as well. And that is, are called strikes a demonstrable skill? Yes. Short and sweet, Alex. I like it. Right to the point. <laughs> yes. No, they have a little bit more um, variance to them than swinging strikes do, but they are still definitely, definitely a skill. Um, and so how do we know that? If I'm looking at these at these metrics and I'm looking at this data, how can I tell who is getting lucky and who is being good? So um, I think that there are a couple different ways. And the first one is like, look at your eye test. Is someone throwing a pitch that a batter is supposed to believe is heading outside and then breaks into the zone? And are they doing that with regularity? Um, mm -hmm. Now, to continue on with our like ridiculous examples, I want to bring in Brad Hand. If he's not okay. a he's not a starter for you, uh, I would hope not. Um, not a starter. <laughs> he's also someone who doesn't have a, a whole lot of velocity on his fastball and is doing just fine. There's a lot of conversation about what other Brad Hand is going to like fall off of a cliff skills wise. But Brad yeah. Hand's entire build as a pitcher is built around deception. He throws this slider of his, which is stupid good. And he gets a lot of whiffs on it outside the zone. But its bigger skill, actually, is he throws it in the zone and gets people to not swing at it. It breaks in and fools batters. So one of the, the concerns with hand, I think, coming into 2021 is that there's been a kind of a, a drop in velocity, a steady mm -hmm. drop over the last few years. So with him, is the, that something that maybe you're less concerned about because that's not necessarily his shtick? Um, I'm a little bit less concerned about it than I would be if it's someone's trick. If someone's ability is to blow the fastball by you, then I'm scared. Now, Brad's right. a lefty, um, and a lot of lefties, you know, throw the word crafty around, but like the build there is <laughs> built around deception because batters aren't used to seeing it. Um, right. Now, the thing that would worry me long term with someone like Zach Allen as a righty, yeah, he's got a lot of pitches. He's got four pitches in his arsenal. He's not throwing his fastball like 60% of the time, um, but. You do worry, though, that, that you might see some degradation of his ability to um, to continue to generate um, stuff. And here's actually where I would say Brad Hand worries me. So um, I'm going to make sure to pull up his actual numbers here because I actually did this the other day uh, whenever I was doing my preview for uh, for Washington. And I found some really wild stuff in it. So there, it's worth like looking at all the different stuff. Um, for those of you guys who aren't familiar, I really love to use Alex Chamberlain's pitch a uh, dash dashboard, which you can find by searching his name and then the word pitch dashboard and then the word tableau. Um, I have it bookmarked. I don't know how else you find it these days. <laughs> uh, but like seriously, an, an underrated tool is where you can find a lot of these numbers that people like me are going to be citing is because we just got them all saved here and Chamberlain's done all the things to us. So yeah, um, as I look at his particular pitches, pitch discipline tab, um, his swinging strike rate on this fastball has declined over the past couple of years. Last year, it was at 4.7%. He had a 28.3% foul ball rate, which is like top 1% of the league out of this <laughs> world. Um, you're seeing, and here's a way we can kind of wrap some of these things up the eye test. As his fastball velocity has decreased, he's gotten fewer swinging strike, rate, uh, swinging strike rates. <laughs> fewer <laughs> swinging strikes. And he's traded them all of them for fouls so far, but he doesn't mm -hmm. have much farther to drop. And that foul ball rate is like top 1% of anyone who's thrown at least like 127 of one pitch over the past four years, like way out of yeah. this world, improbable. So either yeah. he's a wizard, possible. <laughs> it is possible. Or some things are about to fall apart. And this is where you can start to see like, what is my eye telling me? What expectations do I have? I think his slider is still going to be really good, but 
And this is kind of like where we get into that, like, how does everything you do kind of fit together? So beyond just the numbers, I think it's kind of important to talk about which particular pitches are built in such a way. So like, going to throw this back to you, like, if I'm looking for a, a pitch that's going to get swings outside of the zone, what are you expecting? Uh, something with movement, maybe something off speed, something out of the hand. It looks like it's got velocity. Uh, the spin it looks like it's something other than what it actually is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're looking at like sliders and curveballs um, that tend to mirror the opposite thing. There's some really cool stuff with like pitch spin stuff oh, yeah. that's come out this season. But, you know, but the basic idea is it's supposed to look like it's a fastball and then it suddenly isn't after the point at which you start to swing at it. Um, If you've ever played Wii Baseball, (laughs) for those of you guys at home who are more my age, I guess, Wii Baseball is actually a really fun thing to go back and do. Dust off your old Wii sitting somewhere and um, crank it up to like 100 and try to hit off some of those like pro-level batters or pitchers from the AI. They're fastballs and they're... um, they actually throw a curveball and a screwball or their two left right breaking pitches, but they'll break like hard left and hard right. And the, the spin is really hard to read out of hand. Um, but the splitter they throw um, has a much slower spin rate and is actually much easier to catch onto, but it tunnels so well. It's, it's actually wild that if you go back and like watch it, we baseball has like basically figured out how to be a good pitcher, this wild, crazy way that makes it really hard. But, that's a lot of fun. Side. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I just would swing, you know? Uh, <laughs> I didn't know there was so much nuance to Wii Baseball. You know, I was playing it over the over Christmas break, and I was, I was, I was bored. Um, but you can <laughs> see how some of these things work together, is like that pitch that is below the zone, that when you're expecting um, it to be in the same place as a fastball and it isn't, gets you to swing and miss. Um, those things that get called strikes, then, are going to be the pitchers that are built to do some of the opposite stuff. Um, a lot of guys who throw sinkers will try to actually throw them in such a way that they can get called strikes um, by making it look like it's outside and then going in. Uh, you can throw a cutter to do the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you won't always do it. Um, Brad Hand does it with his slider, which is really unusual for a slider to throw it into the zone a lot for called strikes. But it looks like it isn't going to be a strike when he throws it. Uh, and those are the sorts of things when you go look for them. Look at the usage. Is it being thrown in or out of the zone a lot? Is it getting a lot of swings or not? So some, some pitches like zone swing rate, not a number that like maybe you'd think is really important, but it makes so much sense in telling the narrative of how it's used that allows you to go in search of other things. If a pitch has a really high zone swing rate, it's going to have a very low called strike rate. So you would want to hope to see that it has a really huge whiff rate to justify its usage in the zone so much. It's like one thing tells you to go look for the next. Is it being used for whiffs or is it being used for call strikes? And these numbers build on each other and tell you where to go find the next thing. Right. So the, it, they're, they're almost like pieces of a puzzle, right? No one is giving you the big picture, but you put them together and you get a better idea of what's going on. Um, one, one of the guys that I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about is Aaron Savale, another mm. young arm. But I think it speaks to some of what you're talking about here. You know, he's got a, a zone swing percentage uh, in 2020. It was uh, 64%. That was good for 29th in the league. Uh, but a swinging strike rate of just 10.3%. So help me make some sense of those numbers. Yeah, so this is basically exactly what you'd expect. He does not have a whole lot of velocity. Um, he's got a pretty good command, if you will. Like he was able to put stuff where he wanted to put it for a large part of last year. He had some starts where th- some things just really didn't come together. Um, but if we pull up Savale's arsenal in um, 
uh, Chamberlain's leaderboard on Tableau, uh, we can get that story pretty easily. So, for example, his leading pitch that he threw was a cutter. I love cutters. Uh, it's being thrown in the in the zone a whole lot. People swing it um, a whole lot, and it kind of gets a mix of both like called strikes because it's in the zone a lot and some swinging strikes. Twenty eight point five percent CSW. It's fine. Um, mm-hmm. He's got uh, a curveball that's really good though. Uh, 35.4% CSW. Um, it is, um, it's getting a lot of whiffs and it's getting a lot of whiffs both in and out of the zone, but especially out of the zone. And that's like one of the things that it's good at. Um, I will say, um, one of the things that, um, you're going to see a little bit less on, on Chamberlain's uh, dashboard is that you're not gonna be able to see those things like, um, the O swing that are important. And I, I'm actually going to go to Fangrass because I want to make sure I have these things up next to each other. You'll notice that people like me just end up like having a million tabs open because we're constantly doing this nonsense. Because uh, <laughs> everyone's got like 75% of the thing that you're looking for all in one place. So if you're if you're interested and you're curious where to find these things, you should go to someone's Fangrass page and where it says splits. Go to pitch type splits. And that's so you'll be able to you know click any of them. You'll be able to find like how the plate discipline is for one particular pitch out of someone's arsenal. So yeah, it's still looking at his curveball. It's a curveball. It's exactly what you expect. Um, yeah, so his O swing on his curveball was 43.3%. Really high. He's getting a lot of his swing strikes outside the zone. And look at that. 19.7% swinging strike rate on the curveball. Really good. Um, he also threw it 47.2% of the time in the zone, which is much higher than he had in um, the in uh, tw- 2019, uh, which mm-hmm. speaks to like a slightly different usage. Again, if you like look around his profile he's got some other things his sinker um had just a 51.9 percent z swing rate that's a pitch where when he throws it into the zone 64 point or 60.4 percent of the time that's a lot so that means that half the time when it's in the zone people aren't swinging at it that's 30 percent of all the time he's throwing it that's gigantic so you can tell that's by design even if he doesn't get them all called his way he's still doing something on purpose there so it's it's a little bit more likely that it's a repeatable skill. Mm-hmm. Um, to that point, and to to kind of talking about the splits and the curve and the effectiveness, um, something I came across when I was doing my research on on Savali here is 2019. His curve K percentage was 41.7. It was the pitch that he got the most strikeouts with. Mm-hmm. In 2020, that became the four seam fastball, um, uh, which where the K percentage was 37.5. So a little bit less than that curve had been, but it, it became the primary pitch for strikeouts. Can you help me make some sense of that? So K percentage for individual pitches is kind of nonsense. Um, and that like, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm not exactly sure how you're supposed to determine that in a fair way. It's like uh, the num- the percentage of at bats that end in four seam fastballs that were strikeouts. I think is the number. And that means that you can have a really small sample because he didn't throw his four seam very often. He threw 26 four seamers in 2020. Um, now, it had a great swinging strike rate, which is unexpected, um, but he barely is in the zone. It could even just be like misread stuff. I mean, it does make sense, though, if you're a sinker baller. And this is the thing I really like as we kind of transition. I really, really like it whenever you can once in a while throw a four seamer just to keep people off balance get that rise and people don't expect that the ball can go over your bat mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um it's like you might think of it as like you need a pitch that goes up and that's your four seamer you need a pitch that goes left or right and you need the one that goes like straight down and maybe some like different movements in there um but that that keeps the batter off balance um and then the more you can add different directions that the batter can guess the more options they can guess wrong 
And yeah, I mean, still not a whole lot of four seamers done, but you can really understand why they were effective. So, so it's another area where maybe we're we're digging too into or too in the weeds. Looking, I'm going to look at not only K <sighs> percentage, but I'm really going to get into which pitch is generating all these strikeouts. And yeah. I want to segue into one more one more guy, and we don't have to spend a lot of time talking about him, but that's Framber Valdez. And I think that this is a, a, a good segue because he is, if you look at his K percentage splits, he's getting more than half of them on his curveball. And so this kind of begs a question that, uh, again, I, I have a, a natural curiosity about, and I'm hoping that you can give me some numbers here to support what you think is actually going on with him because uh, it looks like his curveball is his out pitch. Oh, yeah. So if it disappears, is he bad? Or is he really good at using his other pitches to set people up to get themselves out on the curveball, which means they're actually very effective pitches. They just maybe don't have the metrics that look really flashy and pretty. So there are some ways we can look at that. But basically, um, you would want to measure, like, you're, you're on the right track. Pitching arsenals are really measured by how well they work together. So if um, if you happen to use a curveball to get some person out a whole lot, then yeah, that worked. As long as you know you don't have some other like situation where um, you're not getting yourself to that two strike count, right? You're not getting yourself set up to get someone out with a curveball. So then maybe that's a, a way that you would look for this. Um, if I'm looking at Framber, you look at his, his sinker as like the big other thing other than his curveball he's using. He barely threw a changeup and he allegedly threw a four seamer, but I don't believe it. Uh, <laughs> and his sinker had a 40% contact rate. In other words, if you look at the number of pitches, number of sinkers he threw that resulted mm-hmm. in contact, it was 40%. It's pretty high. It's not outstanding for a sinker. Um, but then you compare that to like a 29.3% CSW. By the way, his entire CSW almost is made up of called strikes. It's deception. Of course it is. He doesn't throw that hard. Um, but if you give up too much contact, you're not going to get yourself in a position to make that curveball effective. And so we're talking about guys to try to draft to get strikeouts. You're relying first and foremost on Framber Valdez's called strike rate on his sinker to stay really high. Can he do it? Maybe. Um, it's a small sample. And at this point, we're kind of into that, like, that other skill thing. But if the contact rate goes up, people swing on that in the, re- in the zone a little more. Like He's only got a 45% swing rate on his uh, sinker. Uh, part of that is because the curveball's good. People right. aren't swinging because that curveball's buried in the dirt. So maybe there is some balance there. And that's good. If the deception's working, it's good. But let's say that everyone just cranks up their swing rate in general. Maybe that means that curveball gets more strikes or especially swinging straights, but that sinker mm-hmm. might get demolished even more than it already was. Right. There's a lot of ifs here though, right? Framber's really confusing. Um, yeah, he is a little bit. He is, <laughs> And I guess that's why I wanted to bring him up is to, is to kind of showcase the idea that, you know, you look at maybe some of his other pitches and the data doesn't jump off the page at you, but it, it could just be that it's not a bad pitch. It's just used in a way that's not the same as the way Jacob deGrom uses that pitch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't particularly like to draft anyone who throws a sinker as often as Framber Valdez does because I just think that you need to have a little bit more options. Four-seam fastballs get swinging strikes. Um, they can get called strikes as well, but they definitely get a lot of swinging strikes, especially when they're thrown up in the zone. There are some people who are really effective at getting called strikes down in the zone with them. Um, there's some interesting stuff, and basically this is assigned homework for those of you guys who want to go look at it on approach angle. Um, but um, 
generally speaking, I have a lot of doubts about people who only throw sinkers. Because uh, generally speaking, the contact rate on them is really high. And that mm-hmm. tends to end the at-bat before you can get to the strikeout opportunity. Um, now, I don't think that means that Framber can't be a 25% strikeout rate guy. But it means that my money is not on it happening again. I would predict that Framber Valdez will have a strikeout rate closer to 20 than 25% next year. But I still love his curveball. It's going to keep him in the majors, and it's going to keep him viable. Yeah, and it's going to help us with our nastiest pitch series uh on uh, on pitcherlist.com because they look great they really do talking about the eye test right yeah yeah. Uh, it's a lot of fun Uh, i'm going to just kind of put you on the spot here and say you know as we've kind of made our way through uh, a bunch of different pitchers and and how we can apply these concepts uh what would be you think maybe the one or two biggest takeaways for somebody who's used to just kind of going to maybe fan graphs and sorting by k percentage uh, where where would you suggest that would be the you know the next step? What's the next step to to trying to figure out what this what the true story is? So I think you're looking for guys who can make a jump, or maybe you're looking at, at guys who have just debuted, and you're trying to figure out if you could trust it. Uh, trying to figure out who's going to make a jump is really hard. <laughs> uh, typically, it happens yeah. because you make a pitch better. Um, it's not because you tweak how you're already doing things. So for those of us who aren't scouts, I just want to say that like. The jump part is so hard. Um, if you don't literally know about mechanics and say that like Joe Musgrove could be better because of X, Y, Z, like it's really tough. Mm-hmm. But trying to figure out if you should believe something, that is actually where you can start to, to kind of do some of this. I uh, I think that one of the big things people tend to do is when they're trying to figure out if someone is going to get better, if they can believe it, is they just look at how visually nasty something is. Mm-hmm. And um, I really don't like that approach. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. because uh, there, there are a couple different ways you can get tricked. And I'm going to talk about a guy that everyone loves that I don't love, and that is Dustin Bay. Mm-hmm. So um, that Dodgers camera angle really makes the stuff look so, so disgusting. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Dustin May's got some problems. Uh, and everyone loves Dustin May's uh, pitching ninja gifs. Um, he throws a sinker and he throws a cutter. And you know, I'm not going to really say a whole lot more than that. Um, he doesn't have the the vertical drop pitch that he needs. Um, if you compare him to someone like Framber Valdez, he doesn't have that curveball to play off of his sinker in a way that is visually interesting. He's got left and right. Uh, mm-hmm. And now Dustin May is super talented and Dustin May generates a lot of spin on his pitches and Dustin May generates a lot of velocity on his pitches. If he can maybe make a curveball work, I think that he could be excellent. And there's a reason why he has really high scouting grades. He's, people like to refer to spin as potential it's really really well thought of in that sort of way in the same way that um um i don't know if you're looking at batters uh someone's uh, max exit velocity is a good measure of potential if you've got a lot of raw spin you can reformat that spin turn it into a different pitch you can create something magic in some different way and your arm slot will dictate things and your height will dictate things mm-hmm. but if you can spin a ball uh you're gonna be in a good spot um and dustin may can do that but as he's currently built, I would need to see something pretty drastically different for me to expect good results from him. Uh, I do not think that the Dustin May that we saw last year um, is someone that I want to draft, uh, especially not his current cost. He's got a little bit of hype that's just totally like, like it's not a meme, but it's got like the same sort of like function <laughs> as like him being a meme. Except it's just like you know, he's, he's not GameStop stock or anything like that. He's not Bitcoin. <laughs> But, but he's like drafting Yankees whenever you live in New York, you know? There's yeah. a little bit of just like, this dude is cool and I'm drafting him. 
But when you pair him against someone like um, Ian Anderson, who I really love, Ian Anderson has a four-seamer that he seems like he's locating in some pretty decent spaces. He He's really good at getting called strikes on it lower in the zone. He's got a changeup that plays off of it really well in one direction and a curveball that plays off of it really well in another direction, which means that no matter if he's facing a lefty or a righty, he's still able to strike people out because he's getting the left and the right movement. Um, mm-hmm. If you've only got like a changeup as a righty, that means that, yeah, you're going to be able to get off opposite-handed uh, hitters out with a changeup and get strikeouts. So if you're a righty and you got a changeup, you're going to be able to get lefties out. And he's got both. So he can face both sides pretty successfully. Also gives him that added element um, of being able to, um, you know, if he's missing one, still survive for the rest of the day. Three's good. The guy we brought up at the very beginning of the show, Zach Gallen, he's got four. He's got up, down, left, right. <laughs> yeah, He's got it all. Um, so I, what you're bringing up here is is stuff versus arsenal, right? I, I feel like I'm kind of basically saying he's got an arsenal that is varied in the different places it moves to. But all of them are also well-commanded pitches that are deceptive when they're built away from each other. Um, and that puts him in a position where people don't swing at that fastball, which gets him strikes. People do swing at the other stuff, which gets him strikes. And <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, he has had a 28% strikeout rate in two consecutive seasons. Someone like Ian Anderson, when I see someone uh, built the way he is, not sinkers, pitches that seem to really shape off of each other in a good way. I can believe the results I saw. Um, just like, quite frankly, I buy the struggles that Dustin may have, especially in the postseason. Mm-hmm. And and that's why it matters to be able to, like, actually build yourself an eye test that is not just, is this nasty, but is this sustainable? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is one more variable here, too, that um, I don't know that if it gets talked about a ton, but... In 2020, with all of the restrictions on social distancing and everything, there was a lot less video work being done. Um, and so somebody, I would also imagine... restrictions on Astros, if you would. <laughs> well, sure. Uh, but also, for somebody who has two pitches, it, it makes logical sense to me. Maybe I'm wrong, and you can tell me if I am. It makes logical sense to me that they might actually have a little bit more success because... Um, you know, in a normal season, there's going to be a lot of video and they only have two pitches to focus on and figure out. Whereas a guy like mm-hmm. Gallon, there's four. Uh, they're coming at different angles. They're coming, uh, you know, maybe they're mirrored better. Um, when you only have two to have to kind of figure out, uh, it might be easier to go in the video room and, and make that happen. Whereas in 2020, that access was a little more limited. You're saying like as a hitter? Yeah, in preparing to face somebody like Dustin May, right? Okay, yeah. So you're saying that, like, um, I'm trying to come up with, like, a really extreme two-pitch. Uh, Denelson Lamette. Uh, he's only mm-hmm. got two pitches. He's really only got two pitches. Um, <laughs> he was more... You're saying that, according to this theory, he was more successful, and he was, so strike in your favor, uh-huh. uh, because um, typically people would be able to figure out him or figure him out faster, but this year they weren't. That's the idea behind this theory? Uh, yeah, a little bit. You know, okay. that, that, yeah, if you have less time to try and figure out pitches, right? Somebody who yeah, okay. uh, who has less pitches might benefit more. Another reason why Gallon and why Maeda, super loop mm-hmm. back or high on my board. Maeda also throws a ton of pitches. Uh, Corbin Burns, someone who uh, Nick yelled at me for drafting in the top 100. <laughs> I didn't want to walk back. He, uh, he's got a lot of different pitches he can throw. He is paring it down. But he still looks like a guy who's going to have a three-pitch arsenal, I think, in the long run, um, which is important to me. 
because I think that's really really good. Yeah, and I think that's the, that's kind of the point I'm making. I'm just coming at it from you know maybe less of the numbers thing, but in terms of, of prep, you know, the more pitches you have, the harder it is for somebody to be prepped for you. I would think. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, when we talk about the stuff, the big thing that comes to mind is it has got to suck to be a major league hitter sometimes. Uh, one of the hardest things to do, you know, if you've ever gone to a golf tournament, and this isn't to take anything away from golfers, they are incredibly talented at what they do, but you're not allowed to make a sound, right? When they're about to hit the ball. <laughs> it's quiet, please. And the oh. ball's not moving, right? In baseball, you got people shouting at you, calling you names, doing all sorts of stuff in the stands, and that pitch is coming in hard, fast, moving, darting. Uh, hitting a baseball has got to be one of the, the most difficult, discrete skills in all of sports. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think we're at a, a really good spot here to move on to talking about our, our next segment, which is uh, our, our pass-fail segment where we take a little bit of a look at some of the moves uh, that have happened. Um, I think this is probably going to be a pretty quick segment. Um, yeah. We can start with actually off the top if you want the Nolan Arenado deal. I mean, I, I, if you want to try and look at that as, as from a pass-fail perspective – um, I think it shapes itself up to be pretty clear, but I'm going to let you take your the first crack at it. So um, I don't think that this scale is suitable. Um, I think that the Rockies should be forced to drop out. <laughs> like, <laughs> they should be relegated. I, I, I think that um, the level of bad that is what the Rockies did is something that we aren't prepared for as baseball mm-hmm. fans. It's at every single turn, um, there is a different thing that you can pull up that just makes the context worse. Whether it's from um, Rockies owner Dick Monfort basically saying that he still thinks this is going to be a competitive team. Um, mm-hmm. Yikes. It wasn't good <laughs> last year. I mean, he's There's this terrible quote he had where he basically said they, they interpolated the results and decided that because 10 years ago they happened to win like 20 more games after being bad, that this time they were also going to have like a 90-win season. And it was just like pants on fire on head crazy stupid um and i think that he basically said no no we were supposed to be good last year we're still going to be good again despite us getting rid of arenado and getting nothing meaningful in return other than the fact and that by the way doesn't... sending 50 million dollars for the favor now i, w- I want to say here i want to talk about a different move that's not one they're going to bring up and i want to bring talk about this one in context and this is alex cobb being traded uh to the angels okay um and in that trade the Orioles are going to pay more than half of Alex Cobb's salary while he's on the Angels. Uh, the difference is that they got a major league quality second baseman back, and Alex Cobb is not good. And basically <laughs> what this is, is that the, um, the Orioles are going to pay less money in total and get about an equal quality player, but with team control. So they are paying money to accelerate their rebuild. You can argue very ineffectively <laughs> that the Rockies are paying $50 million to accelerate their rebuild and that the prospect hall would be somehow even worse for Nolan Arenado if they hadn't given up all this extra money. This is a failure, not of concept. The idea that someone with a huge contract would be traded and then the other team, the team that had him would eat some money is not stupid. Um, let's say in a hypothetical world, Mike Trout were being traded tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And the Angel said, we're also going to pay a certain amount of that money every year. The price would go up because not only would you be able to get Mike Trout, you'd be able to get 
10 million dollars more player it's just that if i were the angels i would want the entire padres farm system in return for that <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and the rockies <laughs> took this concept and basically executed it as though they were trading chris davis and not nolan arenado right. and that's what's embarrassingly bad about this is they both misunderstand the financial move they made they also misunderstand how talented he is and how bad they are. They're allegedly not in the works to re-sign or trade Trevor Story, who's in the last year of his contract. It's mm-hmm. it's embarrassing. Well, it's and another it's, in a long yeah. line of kind of Ugh. mismanagement, right? You look at the way that they take young players, and, and it just it, it seems like if we're going to go back to our pass-fail, I know you, you don't think that there's enough depth to the pass-fail here, but this is a failure on the part of the entire Rockies organization. Yeah. But in, at the same time, I want to give a pass to the Orioles for their Alex Cobb trade. I want to fail the Angels on their Alex Cobb trade. What are they doing? Why are they rostering Alex Cobb? Um, <laughs> and I want to give the Cardinals um, just one of the biggest uh, passes I've ever seen here um, because they managed to make this happen, which probably involved cutting the phone lines in Denver and making sure that they were the only ones who could possibly make this deal happen. Because I have to imagine that if you were um, the Toronto Blue Jays, you would make this deal and probably give up more. Like, Yeah, I, I don't see how you couldn't have done better. Uh, you, yeah. There must have been a better deal out there. It makes you think that they didn't really knock on enough doors. Yeah, yeah. If, if, I'm, if I'm a Toronto Blue Jays, I 1,000% go and try to make the same move. Um, because they need a third baseman. Um, they don't really have a third baseman. Um, they kind of sort of have Kevin Biggio, but he's better at second and he's better in the outfield. Um, still like an Arenado, uh, Bichette, uh, Biggio, Vladito infield would be pretty good defensively. And then you could have, I guess you could put Springer in that outfield too. They could probably still afford that, especially if they're paying a fraction of his salary. If you're paying two thirds of his salary and, and you see how this is just like, you can come up with really, really simple. There is something else out there maybe maybe toronto wasn't interested maybe toronto kicked the kicked the wheels on this and uh the prospects they offered weren't as appealing to the rockies front office as literally no one of any interest Uh, i can't imagine it was worse i can't imagine it was worse well i think we're in agreement on this i think that uh you know if you go back to what we talked about with the lindor trade it's um you know there are definitely some similarities to this and, and what it does for the fans in air in uh colorado um, yeah, you know, yeah. it's just unfortunate from a fan standpoint when business kind of gets in the way and it's doubled down when the business that gets in the way is bad business. Yeah, I mean, I think that the through line here, though, is that I would say that the Monforts and the uh, Dolans are the two worst ownership families in the league uh, up there only maybe with the Pirates. They got a really bad situation <laughs> there. Their front office has been making smarter moves and there's hope for them, sort of. But they're mm-hmm. still bad. Um, basically, it's really, really terrible whenever your team is run by people who inherited a lot of money or inherited a team. Because often they just don't understand how to run a business in a meaningful way. And they think they kind of have to, a lot of them, because they don't have any other job to do. Uh, yeah. There are a lot of different clubs that are like that. The Orioles are kind of in that way. Uh, Masson has done some really dumb things under the leadership of Peter Angelus' son. The Giants are now about to be controlled by the children of someone who made a lot of money. You got that mm-hmm. going on. And the Cubs, the the Yankees have kind of avoided it because um, Steinbrenners have basically just kept Cashman in, 
in control. But that's a really, really easy thing to go in search of and find unfortunate results that, you know, it's kind of like very finely cutting things with a meat cleaver, but unfortunately <laughs> it still kind of gets you some pretty interesting results. So I'll, I'll hop off that high horse for now. <laughs> yeah, that, it's a, it, I think it's, it's worth saying, though, and I do think it's worth repeating from time to time is just um, there is this uh, friction, I think, between um, what you do for your team from su- uh, supporting putting a product on the field and what you're doing uh, with your team from supporting your bottom line and, and your pocketbook. And, and they do not line up uh, in a lot of cases. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, Alex, I think that we have reached the end of our episode here. We're going to have to maybe uh, push off our off the book segment for this particular uh, episode. Um, we will bring that back next time. Uh, I think it was good for us to devote the time we did to the strikeout discussion though, because that, as you said at the top, strikeouts matter and they matter for more than just strikeouts. Yeah. And I think that one of the things people can kind of try and go do themselves, uh, oftentimes is that same sort of stuff where we took one number like swing rate, uh, which I think is a really good starting point and go try this out with some pitchers that you're interested in. Whether that's, um, oh, there's so many, so many interesting people out there who have really interesting builds. Go, go look at Garrett Cole, but also go look at um, Dylan Bundy. Go look at Zach Plesak. And go look at relievers, too. Relievers are built in some really crazy, interesting ways. So there's a lot of ways for you to go to figure out what is it that the guy that I love does. And then you can go find people who are kind of like built like him. And that's how you make good comparisons and learn to love new guys. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode of Dugout Study Hall. Alex, could you tell the people where they can find us? Well, they can find you on Twitter at TheCorkedMatt. I'm on Twitter at Chase underscore Rate. And most importantly, you can find our podcast on Twitter at Dugout Study Hall, where you can send us some questions. Please be sure to subscribe to the Pitcherless podcast feed if you haven't done that already. Leave us a good review if you can be so kind. And... If you're not already, please consider becoming a PL Plus member so that you can harass us on the PL Discord. And that's it for me. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time.